Good morning. Good. This morning I wanted to talk about uh, the power and the authority of Scripture in the whole Bible and what the power of Scripture means and how that changes our lives. It's a big topic to cover in half an hour, but I'm excited about it. There are some passages that I'd like us to look at that I know will encourage us and give us confidence in our faith. And there are other passages of Scripture that I want us to look at to help us affirm and clarify the significance of spiritual power for believers in the Word of God. I think that knowing more about the Bible deepens our faith when we're tested and helps us to fight against the principalities and powers of this dark world. I certainly don't have all the answers, and you may leave here today with more questions than you had before you came, <laughs> but I hope that this helps to bring you peace because lingering doubts can cause you to drift away from God and weaken your faith if you don't search for the answers to some of the questions that cause you to doubt. Now, the Bible is very much like an onion. There are layers upon layers of incredible, incredibly powerful literature that will literally change your life. So let's just start with an outside layer, okay? There are some general, undisputed facts about the Bible that can be found anywhere, and they are just interesting and fun to know. Some may surprise you, and others you may have heard before, so here we go. The Bible was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. All of the New Testament was written in Greek. Any translation of the Bible is over 600,000 words long. The entire Bible has 40 different authors from very different backgrounds. Some were fishermen, others were poets, there's scholars, peasants, kings, and farmers. In total, there are 66 books in two volumes, 39 in the Old Testament and 27 in the New Testament. The Old Testament took about a thousand years to write, and the New Testament took less than 75 years to write. So the whole Bible then is it's over 3,000 years old. Broadly speaking, the Old Testament tells us what's going to happen. And the New Testament tells us what happened. It is the world's most widely read book. And it is the best-selling book of all time, with over 100 million copies sold every year. Concurrently, it is the world's most stolen book. <laughs> the full Bible has been translated to, to 717 languages. 
Altogether, the Bible contains 17 books of history, five books of poetry, 17 books of prophecy, four gospels, one book of Acts, which recounts the first 30 years of the church, 21 letters, and one revelation. Now, in my first year at Bible college, I took a course called GBI, General Biblical Introduction. All first-year students had to take it, and it was great because uh, there, was a lot of basic, there were a lot of basic truths about Scripture and Christian faith that we studied, and it really helped us to have this knowledge as a foundation to launch us into deeper studies of Scripture later on. One of the first things that we talked about in this class, was probably the very first class, was divine inspiration. The divine inspiration of Scripture. The concept that all Scripture is God-breathed. Now, this is important. This is huge, and I'll tell you why. If you don't believe that every word of Scripture is from God, written through people, th written through those, those 40 authors, then we have a problem. Because people make mistakes. People, without divine inspiration, cannot have written God's message to us. I believe that God breathed every word into their hearts and minds, culminating in ink to paper or papyrus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he, he illuminates this concept of divine inspiration in a beautifully and eloquently written admission. Listen to the first five verses of chapter 2, 1 Corinthians. He says, when I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling. And my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. I love that passage. It, I, it really shows Paul's humility and his willingness to give God all the credit for the message. Then he goes a bit further, and he teaches about the importance of receiving wisdom through God's Spirit in verses 6 to 13. He writes, Yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to this world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No. The wisdom we speak of 
is the mystery of God. His plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had, they would not have crucified our glorious Lord. That is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep secrets. No one can know a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And we have received God's spirit, not the world's spirit, so we can know the wonderful things God has freely given us. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the Spirit, using the Spirit's words to explain spiritual truths. You see, all Scripture is God-breathed. This is a fundamental truth to the Christian faith. And we all make a choice whether or not to believe all of it, because you can't believe in only part of it. It's all or nothing. If you choose to believe in only part of it, then you are creating your own faith and making yourself the God of it. So good luck with that. Scripture in whole is our guide, our compass, our spiritual lifeline. The whole Bible is God talking directly to all generations over all time to teach us his ways and to reveal his truth and to sustain his light who is Jesus Christ in our hearts. The words of God bring life and light into the darkness. The scriptures themselves are an endless stream of living water and spiritual food for the believer. They bring clarity where there is confusion, joy when there's pain, comfort when there's sorrow. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. In 2 Timothy 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul warns Timothy 
about those who choose not to believe in the words of God. He says, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. That sounds so familiar, doesn't it? I think we are living in a time just like this. We are living now in a time of total confusion because the devil is the prince of this world and the lord of confusion and the father of lies. Now, some of you, you might be worried about the longevity of Scripture in times like these. Some of you might be doubting how long Scripture can last in a world that is changing so fast and is so filled with confusion and contempt for absolute truth. But you know what? I'm not worried. I'm not worried because I know, I know in my heart and my mind and my soul that there is only one God and he gave us only one book. And it is the only source of divine truth. And Jesus Christ is the only Savior. And they're not private. The Bible is for everyone. All generations over all time. And the grace and the sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ is available for everyone. And only God writes history. So I'm not worried. I'm excited because uh, it means that we're that much closer to his return and his promise of a new heaven and a new earth. So all scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is inspired by God and it acts as a solid bedrock for our faith. The Bible is not like shifting sands. It's rock solid and it's here to stay. So that is crucial it's crucial to understand for your faith to grow. Okay, let's peel off another layer of the onion. Let's talk about prophecy. In the Old Testament, the first 39 books, there are approximately 2,000 references to God speaking. Writers of the Old Testament refer to their writings as the words of God over 38 hundred times. New Testament writers make references to the Old Testament about a thousand times. I got these numbers from John MacArthur, by the way. Not to steal his thunder, I just trust his research and I give him all the credit for that. He also says the New Testament affirms the Old Testament, that there is internal agreement or proof. Now, true prophecy is a prediction of an event or events that actually happen, events that come to pass. And Christians believe that the Bible is not only God-breathed or inspired by God, but that it is also inerrant, without error, that there are no mistakes or errors in the Bible. 
And one of the best ways to argue the validity of Scripture is by studying the predictions of the Old Testament with their fulfillment in the New Testament. It's kind of fun. There, there's hundreds of them. Isaiah 53 is probably the most detailed prophecy, and it is the most frequently quoted passage in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. Isaiah 53 is sometimes referred to as the gospel of the Old Testament or the fifth gospel. John MacArthur calls it the first gospel. I like that. It starts in verse 1, Isaiah 53, verse 1. It says, who has believed our message? That sounds a lot like the Apostle Paul, doesn't it? In 2 Timothy 4, 3-4. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will reject the truth. Remember? And I said, I think we're definitely living in a time just like this. Verse 2 of Isaiah 53. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. That means his beginnings would be humble. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a small, insignificant place. He grew up in Nazareth, a small, insignificant, nowhere town. Micah 5.2 also predicted this and actually named the birthplace. Going on in verse 2 of Isaiah, there, there was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. So Jesus wasn't good-looking. He wasn't the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Hollywood Jesus that we're also familiar with and that we hang on our walls. Uh, verse 3 of Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. We did not care. Let's look at John chapter 1. It says... Uh, it says, uh, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. See, there was nothing royal about Jesus at all. Verse 4, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Look at Matthew chapter 8. Uh, verse 16, that evening, many demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. He cast out the evil spirits with a simple command, and he healed all the sick. You see, the sins of the world weighed heavy on Jesus, and he wanted to bring physical and spiritual healing to all the people that he came in contact with. Back to Isaiah, verse 5, he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could, made, so we could uh, be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Remember, they didn't break Jesus' legs on the cross. Do you remember that? Like, like they did to the other two men that were being crucified with him. Instead, the Romans pierced him with a spear and the prophecy was fulfilled. You see, everyone thought he was suffering for his own sins. But it all happened because of us, because of our sins, the sins of the whole world. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus' disciples did the exact same thing, gone. They left they abandoned him. They 
all betrayed him, not just Judas, his closest friends. They completely scattered and left him to be harshly beaten. Verse 7 of Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was fed like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. This is exactly what happens to Jesus. It's exactly, it's recorded in all four Gospels. Here it is in Matthew chapter 27. 14 to 16, it says, But when the leading priests and the elders made their accusations against him, Jesus remained silent. Don't you hear all these charges they're bringing against you, Pilate demanded? But Jesus made no response to any of the charges, much to the governor's surprise. And on it goes. Every verse of Isaiah 53 comes to pass 700 years later. Isn't that amazing? Isaiah 53 was written approximately 700 years before Jesus was crucified. I mean, think about this. 700 years ago from now was the year 1322 A.D. Now... (laughs) If an event was predicted, if a prophecy was made in the year 1322, a prophecy in that great uh, of detail as, as Isaiah 53, and it all came to pass this year in 2022, exactly as it had been predicted, would you not believe wholeheartedly in that prophecy? That would prove that it's valid, right? How can such a detailed account of an event in history be recorded 700 years before it happens? Because it's perfect. It's perfect and pure and true and God-breathed. God writes history. Now, before we leave Isaiah 53, I wanted to bring your attention back to verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. I tremble when I read that. I tremble. This verse scares me because I like to think that I would never stray away from God. Because I love having faith in Jesus Christ. I love being part of the family of believers. But my faith, my commitment to God, the part that I'm trying to do here on earth, it's not enough. God's grace, fortunately, is enough for me. And I know his grace covers all of my sin. And I find peace in that. But I'm still here. I'm still here living my life out on earth. And the most significant and effective way that I've found to help me through this life and the best way I've found to deal with the evil forces in the heavenly realms that pit themselves against me, which Paul says is our real struggle, is to know Scripture, to read Scripture, to memorize 
Scripture, speak Scripture, teach Scripture, preach Scripture, because Scripture is what God gave directly to all of us to help us through this life. It's a map to navigate your way through life. Scripture will lift you out of despair, darkness, depression, confusion, loneliness. It's like food. It's, actually, it's not just like food. It is spiritual food. Life is hard enough as it is when we're born into a world of sin and darkness and confusion. But Scripture is right there at our fingertips to guide us and keep us on the narrow path to Jesus. We don't have to scatter and stray away from him. I'm encouraging all of us this morning to fight against the things that oppress us. Don't give in. Stand firm in your faith. Use scripture to ground your faith in Jesus Christ. That way, you won't let your sins control your actions. We carry Scripture around in our pockets all day on our phones, right? Think about everything that we use our phones for. Scary. It's hard to even remember how we lived without them. Now think about how often you access Scripture to guide your life choices. Because the access we have now to Scripture through technology, it's incredible. You can pull up any translation or version or paraphrase or, uh, that you like at any time. Use it. Peel back another layer of the onion. Come into the light and know God better. How are you doing this morning? How would you evaluate yourself? Have you been straying away from God? Have you left God's ways to follow your own way? Are you aware of how you're doing spiritually? You see, we all need to stop. We all need to stop and question our motives and our passions once in a while. And make sure we're not doing a 180-degree turn away from God and how he wants us to live. How do we do that? Through Scripture. It's the only source of divine, of divine truth and inspiration. There's power and authority for your life in Scripture. Okay. <laughs> We've talked about divine inspiration and prophecy. Now I'd like to talk briefly about culture in regards to scripture. I've been in conversations with people who like to completely negate the authority of the Bible because they think the applications within the Bible were only for the time and place in which they were written. I'm having more and more conversations with other believers, other Christians who hold this view as well. More conversations than I'd like to have, as a matter of fact. This is a tough one. It's tough. It's easy to misread Scripture in a world filled with such diverse cultural identity and language, right? But let's start by remembering that the writers of the Bible, those 40 authors, were just normal people. 
exactly like you and me. God inspired them to write the words, yes, but they were all just regular people. In fact, all of the characters in all of the stories in all 66 books of the Bible were all just people exactly the same as you and me. With the exception of Jesus, because he was also fully God, even though he was tempted in every way, just like all of us. So let's throw some names out there. How about Moses? Exactly the same as you and me. That's right. Exactly. How about Noah? Same. Same as you and me. How about Ruth? Esther? David? Isaiah? Jeremiah? Matthew? Mark? Luke? John? Paul? All people exactly the same as you and me. They lived on the earth for a little while, and then they died. They were people with the same struggles, same problems, same anxieties, same controversies, same oppression, same passions, same goals, same everything. They're all just people that existed on the earth a little bit earlier than us. They're all just people that need a savior just like us. They're all people that were given one book, one book. In fact, they weren't even that lucky. They had to actually write it. We're not special. We're not living in some special time where it's really hard to stand up for the things that we believe in. It's always been hard. We're the same. Globally, we are people with hearts, and the heart of God is mercy. Mercy with a capital M. God wants the hearts of all people to turn to him through Jesus Christ. Now, this is important. Listen to this. Jesus Christ is the center of the entire Bible's meaning. That's the most important thing I want you to remember from this morning. Jesus Christ is the center of the entire Bible's meaning. Christianity is not a me-centered faith. It is a die-to-self faith. It's a Jesus Christ-centered faith. Every person in the world who reads the Bible reads it with different cultural habits that shape their understanding of Scripture. But individual interpretation should not be factored into the meaning of any one verse or passage of Scripture. This is, this is going to be hard for some of you to hear, but here it goes. I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, we're, we are not, as individuals, the center of God's story. It's not a me-centered story. It is a die-to-self story. Jesus Christ is the center of God's story. Therefore, we don't have a privileged license to claim 
that any one verse or passage of Scripture is only about us or only about our generation or culture. If we do view Scripture with a me-centered lens, we'll misread it every time. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ and all people, all generations, all cultures collectively over all time. It's perfect and clear and true. It's God-breathed. It's rock-solid. It's food for our spirit, and it has power and authority to change your life. I'd like to read the last seven verses of Psalm 19, and then we'll pray. King David writes, The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They are sweeter than honey, even honey dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart. Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I'd like to invite uh, the, the prayer teams to come down. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your words of life. Thank you for revealing your mystery and your promises to us through your word. We give you all the glory, all the praise, all the love you deserve. Thank you for making your son Jesus the center of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.